0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham came in to talk about federal politics. Then, Professor Emeritus Jürgen Tautz from Würzburg University joined me to talk about his new book, The Honey Factory, Inside the Ingenious World of Bees. He co-authored it with his colleague, Diedrich Steen. Then finally, Professor Joy DeMussi, President of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, joined me to talk about the ARC Humanities grants that were vetoed by the former Minister for Education, Simon Birmingham. This is Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM in Melbourne. I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Hi there, Ben. Hi,
1: Amy. Hello.
0: I'm good, feeling very at home now that I'm back behind the panel. It's
1: good to have you back, mate.
0: I just kind of feel really, like, happy. Yeah. 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 It's um, so weird. Even with a two-week break, I was, like, desperately ready to come back already. I can't take breaks. I'm not a good break taker.
1: Well, you know, you know, you could, you could stay in the saddle, mate. Get back on the horse, yeah.
0: <laughs> and all of
1: those, all different... those cliches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. All One right. week at a time.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, we are d- taking it day by day. But um, Ben, let's talk federal politics. There is uh, a lot happening, particularly because of the Wentworth by election having been completed. Pretty much, has the vote count actually finished?
1: Um, I don't believe they've finalised the result yet, but I think it's it's a foregone conclusion that Karen Phelps will win Mm. the Wentworth seat and uh, she'll take up her place as an independent member of the lower house.
0: And she pulled ahead just at the end there because they were worried which way the um, pre-poll and postal votes would be going, and so she extended her lead a bit more so that it wasn't just so, you know, under 1,000 votes.
1: Yeah, Sharma had a late swing to him after the count finished on the Saturday night. uh, But then even when the pre-polls were counted and all the rest of it, postal votes, Phelps was so far ahead that really she was safe. And, um, you know, I I think she's going to hold that seat pretty comfortably.
0: Mm. It's very interesting uh, that we've almost really forgotten that the government suffered a massive defeat in a very safe Liberal seat, which was former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's
1: seat. Uh-huh. Well, Laura Tingle had a good article in the ABC over the weekend where she pointed mm. out that the government's just sort of pretending that it didn't happen Nothing almost. to
0: see here. Yeah,
1: <laughs> quite amazing, really. I mean, an absolute hiding delivered to the Morrison government. Uh, you know, one of the safest seats in the country. It's never been held by anyone but a Liberal member or the predecessor of the Liberal Party, the UAP, back way back mm. even down back into the 1900s so uh, a devastating defeat and phelps of course will be an activist independent member of the lower house and it also changes up the numbers in the federal parliament um meaning that the government's kind of vulnerable uh, should a single person cross the floor so yeah. um, there's now talk about whether perhaps the independent members will <clears throat> the cross bench will get together to do some kind of motion or a bill for a federal icac a federal Anti-Corruption Commission. Mm-hmm. Greens have had a bill in the Senate for about six years on that, uh, not yep. supported by Labor. Labor says they want to do a federal ICAC after they get elected. So,
0: Well, they want the credit for it, don't they?
1: Because uh, they've been
0: pushing for this for a long time and so it's one of their kind of cornerstones
1: Well, um, so if you go back, uh, it was actually originally floated by Bob Brown in 2010. Um, Christine Milne put a pretty detailed bill to the Senate in 2013. Mm. Um, It's been Labor policy for around about a year now. Mm. Bill Shorten gave a major speech in January about it. So um, it is shaping up that we're going to have some kind of federal anti-corruption body, certainly if not before the next election, then after the next election.
0: Well, it's really interesting that you say that now that we've got a minority government essentially – they don't command a majority on the floor of the House of Representatives. It is going to come down to this group of independent senators and others, such as Rebecca Sharkey from Centre Alliance. And uh, they've come out and, and spoken on the weekend about an Anti-Corruption Commission um, because that is one thing that pretty much everyone agrees upon um, at least on the crossbench is that there needs to be an ICAC a federal one given that we have state ones but not anything to oversee our federal
1: Yes, pretty much everyone except the Liberal Party thinks we need a Federal Anti-Corruption Commission, (laughs) Mm. and I wonder why that is. Interesting. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, just last week we found out that the Assistant Treasurer, Stuart Robert, is being investigated by ASIC, Mm. the very agency that he oversees as the Assistant Treasurer. So, I mean, you know, um, there's, there's all sorts of probity issues at play in the coalition. You mentioned in your introduction the former Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, has been secretly vetoing Australian Research Council grants. Uh, that's caused a storm of controversy in the university sector over the weekend. Uh, there's all sorts of issues uh, at play, really, in terms of uh, No, not maybe out-and-out corruption, but certainly malfeasance, maladministration.
0: Massive conflicts of interest.
1: Conflicts of interest. If you're in
0: the business world, you wouldn't get away with that because governance demands that you declare not only actual conflicts, but perceived conflicts.
1: Well, I don't know about the business world. Uh, They haven't covered themselves in glory in the financial sector lately, but uh, yeah, you know.
0: The AICD course, best practice would be that.
1: Right, well, I can't speak for the company directors of this land, but, uh, uh, you know, um, I, I think there's, there's a lot of problems in terms of um, an erosion in the standards of, of public management in our federal government. classic recent example this year is the $444 million grant to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, mm-hmm. basically done over a 45-minute meeting with essentially no public service input whatsoever. In fact, we now know that the, the person who really pushed for that grant to be given in that way was Scott John Morrison. Morrison.
0: Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting, Ben? And there's another thing that's quite interesting and made a few people... Shocked over the weekend, which was the fact that we keep shifting money around. And one of the examples of a shift in money was the government uh, has established a drought relief fund for our farmers. And, of course, why would you um, get new money for that? You wouldn't. You would take it from another program. So they're shifting $3.9 billion from the NDIS over to the drought relief fund. Why would you do something when um, there was already, I guess, questions around just how well the government can fund the NDIS because they're relying upon having money coming in from taxes? Well, to fund y- it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this gets into one of those classic questions of, of budgeting, which is where does the money come from, you know? Um, and, and normally, actually, at this point in any conversation, I have a modern monetary theorist call in and say, the government can spend as much money as it wants because it prints its own currency. We'll leave that one aside for the moment. <laughs> um, not in normal budgeting, um, the government gets its revenue, obviously, from taxes and it spends it in the way that it sees fit. What it's decided to do here is to take $3.9 billion, I think, from the NDIS and to use it for drought relief. Now, um, the government's obviously entitled to do that, but uh, a lot of people are making some pretty valid points, which is why would you take it from the most disadvantaged part of our community and from an area that clearly is already underfunded, the National Disability Scheme, in order to put it into drought relief? Couldn't the government simply find the money from elsewhere or take the hit to the the budget you know i mean the 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 budget is uh, rapidly improving in terms of it, they're going to be delivering a surplus probably next year or the year after so you know if it, it wants to spend an extra 4 billion dollars why not simply budget for that rather than taking money off you know mm. some of the most disadvantaged members of our community
0: well it's a continuing theme of this liberal government is to take money off those that need it most and particularly in terms of uh, welfare we've just noted through the senate estimates that uh, the government had said it planned to conduct a medical review of 30,000 disability support pension recipients every year for three years in order to hopefully in their mind pick up people who are now ineligible for the disability support pension and move them on to the much uh, cheaper option which is new start which is actually for job seekers presumably people who are on the disability support pension are there for a very specific reason what happened there ben because the government was kind of caught a bit red-faced
1: yeah, this is of a piece of the government's welfare policy for the last oh, five years, basically, which has been to crack down on welfare recipients as basically some kind of undeserving poor, people who are somehow faking it. And, and there was an open rhetoric from the government that it was going to crack down on the disability pension because it thought that people were faking it. Well, they've undertaken a tremendously invasive review of more than 30,000 people on these pensions mm. to see if they really did deserve them and lo and behold yes they did, they were only able to kick something like 30 people of those 30,000 off the DSP and onto Newstart the reason is of course because it's very difficult to get the disability pension extremely Extremely difficult. difficult and the government has already put so many barriers in the way of people accessing that payment that it's not surprising that there aren't that many fakers because it's an extremely bureaucratic and difficult thing to be able to access
0: Mm, And I know that the Gillard government actually started that tightening of the disability support pension.
1: Yeah I mean I think something's got to be done about this continuing war on welfare recipients. I think it's disgusting frankly the way the government treats people who are unlucky enough to be getting a very very small payment from the government due to life circumstances Mm. by definition beyond their control. Most people are not doing it because they want the money from the government <laughs> um, i mean you know the, the, even just suggesting that i think is deeply offensive uh, and yet there's this constant kind of punching down particularly mm. from the coalition government but labor's done it too when it was in office yeah um in, well, there's in, this
0: rhetoric of the dignity of work well what about those people who are unable to work because of their disability or medical condition and can't have that dignity that that apparently accompanies it.
1: Yeah, I mean, anyone who's sat through a question time in the federal parliament will see some pretty undignified work by our federal politicians. Mm-hmm. So I, I find that rhetoric, you know, basically straight out of the 19th century Victorian, like a Dickens novel, really. Um, you know, there's it's there's no place for it in, in a 21st century industrialised society that's rich enough to look after the disadvantaged in our community. And I'd like to see some politicians standing up for people who are on welfare and saying that, you know, what we call these welfare welfare benefits benefits for a reason uh let's celebrate the fact that as a society we're able to offer these to the people who need them
0: Mm, exactly and there are a couple of things that have also been coming to light around centrelink Uh, i believe that the services there are as many people would already know, a bit subpar.
1: <laughs> I mean, what's been done to Centrelink under this government, I think, is nothing short of a scandal. Uh, it has systematically defunded Centrelink, withdrawn resources from the organisation to the point where it can't do its job. And we saw that in a graphic statistic of 48 million, 48 million unanswered calls which were revealed at Senate Estimates this week. That's the official figure of the number of calls that Centrelink has not answered. Uh, Now, clearly there's not enough funding for Centrelink. Uh, We need more people to answer the phones so that people calling in can get the help that they need. Uh, There's also a rolling sort of privatisation by stealth going on Mm. in that department where, uh, you know, a large number of people who are public servants have been made redundant in recent years and now the government's looking to replace those people with contractors. Uh, So, you know, uh, very, very significant questions are being asked by the Labor opposition about why that's being done, why yep. people aren't being employed under normal public service employment conditions.
0: And that's for um, Centrelink call centres and also front of house. they trialing that which is quite disturbing
1: yeah it is disturbing because firstly uh why do we need to pay a private contractor to deliver a public service unless of course what's going to happen is that the people delivering that service will be paid less and the service that they deliver will be inferior i mean Mm. it's hard to believe that one of these corporate contractors like a circo is going to come in do the job and somehow do it better for less money than the public service already does it i actually just don't buy that
0: neither do i (laughs) (laughs) what a surprise um now ben there's something else which is interesting um there are now some people in the liberal party who do not have uh i guess the um same constraints as their colleagues particularly backbenchers but I'm thinking of Julia Banks, who has announced she's not going to recontest her seat of Chisholm, which means that she can, uh, I guess, call out the hypocrisy of her own party and of the Labor Party. Um, She did so in a speech in Parliament. I didn't get to see um, how many people were actually present for that speech, but it was some, at least something to see that uh, that some people, sadly, at the end of their career, will stick their neck out on an issue like children um, and their health over in Nauru.
1: Yeah, there's been an outbreak of compassion about children in Nauru in recent times in the Parliament. I'm not quite sure what's happened. Maybe they've been pumping some happy gas into the, the air conditioning or something on Capitol Hill because uh, you know obviously for years and years and years it's been a bipartisan policy by both major parties to inflict as much cruelty on the people that are unlucky enough to have been locked up in these jails these these detention centers offshore um, to inflict as much damage and, and you know retribution on them as possible with the rhetoric that this will stop the boats that this mm-hmm. will be a disincentive to people making the trip to Australia by sea. Um, suddenly we're seeing people actually suddenly become quite uncomfortable with the level of distress and danger that's happening um, to children in particular in those detention centres. And Julia Banks, the uh, Liberal member for Chisholm, has given a speech where she's expressed you know, her, her discomfort with that and is calling for the children to be moved off Nauru. It's a very late display of compassion, mm. I find, from some of these members who are all too happy to vote for all sorts of punitive measures against asylum seekers in the past. Uh, But I think it's a measure of how the asylum debate has started to turn. Um, And I think this has happened uh, because, I think, paradoxically, of the success of Operation Sovereign Borders, because as the government's been able to, yes, stop the boats, Mm. uh, largely by towing them back to Indonesia, um, people have started to become concerned about what are the consequences of that policy.
0: Yeah. Well... As there are some polls out saying that um that people support or a lot of australians support that turn back the boats policy unfortunately um but that then has meant that they um are as you said concerned about the people who have been detained who did um you know make it so to speak and are on nauru um julia bank's called it a detention of the mind and spirit because she said, of course, these people are now not technically locked up but they're stuck on this island and they are still detained um, and it would be wrong to characterise it other otherwise. Um, but it's interesting now that the New Zealand solution has got some traction as well and also um, that Labor and the independents and crossbench have started to signal they would be willing to consider um, a compromise solution.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's been talk of, you know, uh, taking some of these asylum seekers to New Zealand. New Zealand still says that they will take them. The Morrison government has vetoed that. Um, We are sending um, some people to the United States uh, so that's happening that's ongoing um, and we are bringing um, very distressed children particularly mental mentally ill children um, to Australia for treatment uh, but there's still a very strident rhetoric from the Morrison government that we can't weaken our stance in any any way because that will restart the boats and mm. so on and so forth and the Labour Party of course has taken a, a particularly cynical view in my point in my in my view mm. uh, on this which is basically to try and follow the morrison government in lockstep really so as to make sure they're not seen to be weak on border border protection
0: yes well there are two real issues that have um, been the downfall of both parties which is uh, immigration and also the issue of climate change and uh, we have no real effective climate change policy nor a really solid energy policy of any kind Uh, and we have saw Malcolm Turnbull former Prime Minister over at the Oceans Conference representing Australia and uh, making some remarks not only about climate change but also about the very odd thought bubble that uh, Scott Morrison had in the last week of the Wentworth by-election which was the uh, idea to follow Donald Trump and move the Australian Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and uh, Turnbull whilst he was in Indonesia speaking with uh, the president there obviously needed to do some diplomatic uh, work heavy work to allay their concerns.
1: Yeah I think there's still reverberations resounding through the Canberra bureaucracy about the way in which the Morrison government hung out that idea of moving the embassy in Jerusalem. We now know due to Senate estimates that the Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne wasn't told about it until almost the time that he was making the announcement no one in the bureaucracy was told Mm. Uh, the chief of the ADN was not told despite the clear security implications of such a move Uh, so it really was policy on the run it was a shambles um, and there's a lot of bureaucrats who are deeply unsettled by that um, particularly in the defence establishment because um, they're used to politicians making all sorts of silly announcements um, in the heat of a campaign on domestic policy but to make a major foreign policy announcement and a shift in foreign policy really without any consultation with the foreign policy establishment or the defence establishment has deeply concerned many of the generals and the boffins up there on russell hill in canberra so um, there's a lot of reverberations within the canberra bureaucracy and it, it goes to really the disorganization of the morrison government there still is a prime minister on trainer wheels he's still making a lot of mistakes as he learns on the job mm. and his government is completely chaotic on a lot of policy issues and you mentioned climate that's a good example there really is no climate policy Uh, there's certainly no energy policy of any kind of uh, any kind of coherence really except to continue on with this sort of rhetoric about fair dinkum power now fair dinkum power is scott morrison's new term for dispatchable power dispatchable power just means power that can be sent to the grid now that can be power from any electricity source so he's using it as a synonym for coal and they're talking Mm. about now even like crazy things like indemnifying coal plant operators against their carbon liabilities in order to get one of these new coal plants built it's madness no energy analyst thinks that it can be done no energy company wants to do it nobody wants coal except the coalition it's quite crazy and this is kind of where they've painted themselves into uh in terms of their their energy sort of rhetoric because in order to sort of um cater i guess to the troglodytes on the right wing of the liberal party base Mm. they've um, ended up sort of trying to to pretend that that somehow we can have an energy policy in which we will build a new coal plant and it just isn't going to happen
0: well ben they do have coal in their name
1: as many people would point out
0: i mean it just all makes sense
1: Yes. Uh, it's a
0: branding issue.
1: Lest we forget, Scott Morrison was the man who brought in the lump of coal to Parliament. And you're not allowed props. No, no. So, I mean, you know, look, it just it's just totally incoherent. It's chaotic. It's a shambles. And it's no wonder that the Morrison government is slipping further and further behind in the polls.
0: Yeah, well, you did mention Laura Tingle's piece, uh, which I really highly recommend everyone read. It is so scathing and brilliant. And it just really calls out exactly what's happening which is pretty much nothing Um, but one of the quotes that I really enjoyed reading and I'm just going to quickly find it whilst I'm if I can find it there we go Um, she says truly the stuff of complete amateurs and not just complete amateurs but political cynics who think it is okay to play with national policy as a political tactic and then have the goal to suggest that is they who are avoiding all the nonsense of the Canberra bubble
1: yeah, pretty much. I mean it's it's sums re- it up quite well. It's really hard to say too much positive about Scott Morrison's prime ministership so far. Uh, and that's probably why no one is saying very much positive <laughs> about it. I
0: think we're all waiting for something to happen you know, like a real clear vision of what the government is seeking to do.
1: Yeah, and I, and I don't think we'll see that because Scott Morrison is not a vision guy. He's not a big picture thinker. He's not someone who's published widely on intellectual political issues before coming to the prime ministership. You know, he's a marketing guy and I think his approach to the prime ministership has shown that you need more than that. You actually need substance uh, as well as, you know, snappy little uh, phone videos and, and, and some <laughs> of the social media that he's been doing since coming to office um and you can't paper over the big picture challenges that face australia you know climate Mm. is not going away you know australia signed up to paris uh the world is getting warmer uh our energy system is rapidly transforming you can't wish these you know these things away they're going to happen no matter what you what you do so the challenge of any responsible government is actually to face those challenges and to make policy about them
0: absolutely that's a good place to finish Ben I think we could keep going for hours I'm sure but we won't because um, I have more interviews, but um, I'm thanks. looking
1: forward to hearing Joy talk about yeah. the, the ARC stuff.
0: Well, I really want to cover that in some detail. So she um, she did put out a statement just before the weekend about it, and it was very strongly worded. So, um, rightly, many academics across all areas and disciplines are very concerned about what this signifies. Don't like it, it's really. Th- the humanities are targeted but you know even the academy of science has put out a statement saying this is ridiculous
1: yeah because i think the scientists also realize that if it can happen to the people who study humanities it can happen to the scientists it can happen to the people who study Mm. climate change for example exactly and if you've got ministers coming in at the last minute after the peer review has taken place and after the college of experts has made their decision and then just taking a magic marker and ruling out grants because they don't like the sound of them you know that's a deeply worrying place for the future of Australian scholarship.
0: Massively disturbing. So that's my last interview.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it.
0: Thanks, Ben. Thanks for coming in and I'll see you
1: sometime. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Looking forward to it. Yeah.
2: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
0: And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. We are in Melbourne today, of course, but I'm very lucky to have an international guest with me on the phone. His name is Jürgen Tautz. He is Emeritus Professor at the University of Würzburg and he is an expert in biology, zoology and the study of insects. And he's co-written a book with Diedrich Steen and uh, it is called... Called The Honey Factory Inside the Ingenious World of Bees. And I welcome Jurgen now. Hello there.
2: Hello, Amy. It's great uh, talking to you, and I hope you are okay today.
0: Oh, thank you very much. And you. Thank you for joining me all the way from Munich.
2: No, that's no problem. Uh, In fact, I sit a little bit away from Munich, it's uh, Würzburg, but it's only a few hundred kilometres, so short distance for Australia standards.
0: Yes, that's very true. It's all a bit different in Europe, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) And the same goes for honeybees, that you have um, specific kinds of bees in Europe, don't you, that are different from other bees you might come across in the world?
2: Yes, so the uh, term bees is, uh, from a zoological perspective, not very uh, well identifiable. So we have, uh, like, uh, solitary bees, which are bees which do not uh, make uh, colonies, which live uh, for themselves. Then we have so-called stingless bees, which uh, are native at uh, your country. So, and in, in fact, about 40 years ago, I studied them in a Queensland in Australia a little bit. And then we have the uh, real honeybees, which have not been native to Australia, but they were introduced by the uh, people which uh, came to Australia. And uh, honeybees uh, make colonies, big uh, colonies and details about which we may speak a bit later, I think.
0: Yes, because uh, honeybees have been used by humans for many, many years and you do start the book talking about how humans initially when they were trying to take honey from hives would almost really destroy the beehive um, and the, the colony that they were interfering with just to access the honey um, as a source of food. It's really interesting that beekeeping and the history of beekeeping has evolved over time. How much better have humans got now of treating bees because we use them for so many different things that they create?
2: So since uh, millennia, uh, two products by honeybees Have been collected by humans. It's uh, honey as a food and uh, wax as a very important material for different purposes. And uh, in the beginning, uh, humans went out in the uh, woods where uh, wild honeybee colonies uh, were living in hollow trees or in the cracks of uh, rocks. And uh, in order to get access to honey and uh, to wax, say as you said, uh, had to destroy the, the combs, uh, the nests of the honeybees. So that was very disadvantageous for both uh, sides. It was very painstaking for humans, uh, taking literally because they were stung uh, badly by the bees, which uh, defended uh, the nests. And it was a disaster for the bees because the nests were destroyed completely. and. Uh, over the millennia, humans uh, learned how to treat bees, uh, yeah, in a way that uh, is advantageous for both uh, partners. And uh, finally, so what the, the stage that we find at the moment is that uh, beekeepers, uh, which are, a few of them are professionals, most of them are very enthusiastic uh, hobby beekeepers, They are using artificial housing which in a way uh, mimic uh, hollow trees and uh, which are made such that bees can make a comfortable living on the one hand but uh, that it makes it also fairly simple for the beekeepers to take the products from the uh, hive that he wants to take.
0: Yes, that's true and you talk about the new types of Hives that we're using at the moment to try and reduce the interference that we're creating when we try and take honey from the combs. And you say that um, there are two main functions or purposes of a comb. The queen bee must have somewhere to lay the eggs that will develop then into young bees and she lays those eggs in comb cells. And then, of course, uh, they also use those comb cells around the eggs to store food such as pollen and honey, which they rely on to survive through the winter. So those really important resources are there that the bees need and then... Presumably, humans would be taking the excess honey that they don't necessarily require for their survival.
2: Yes, so the, the combs uh, by themselves, they ha- have multiple purposes. So the two, two most important, uh, you mentioned already, so they are home for the young, for the larvae, which are raised by the colony and the storage room for pollen and for for honey that is made by by the honeybees. But uh, the comb also serves as a telephone net, if you want uh, to call it like this. So honeybees inside the nest live in total darkness, and uh, in order to communicate, They use uh, very, very, very slight vibrations uh, they create as signals and that run across the combs and spread messages between the members of a colony. And there are much more functions of the comb, but uh, they are less interesting for the beekeeper. They are more interesting for the bees by themselves. And just as you say, the less uh, destruction humans do to these combs, uh, the less uh, stress it is for the honeybees. Because in order to rebuild and to fix the combs, they even have to produce the material by themselves. So honeybees, are different to us humans, do not take material out from nature to build their home, but they make it by themselves, so they produce the wax by themselves, and uh, this is a very painstaking business, and uh, the less they have to do it, the better it is for the for the uh, bees.
0: And it's really interesting the way that uh, you describe how bees construct their comb um, because you talk about the fact that from the age of about 10 days, a young worker bee is able to sweat tiny wax plates from eight small groups of glands on the underside of her abdomen. How do they construct the comb using the wax because you talk about the fact that the comb is very very stable and that they are essentially building a very strong structure almost like pre-stressed concrete
2: yes so there are different or uh, there, there are several aspects which are really astonishing about combs so one you mentioned already it is uh, extreme stability therefore uh, lightweight uh, structures which have to be very stable are imitating the combs of honeybees like uh, in, uh, in, in in ships or airplanes for example um, and, and what is also amazing about uh, the combs is the almost crystal like uh, regularity so the angles are perfect and the, the lengths of the walls are perfect and everything is perfect like in a crystal and this made great uh, People like uh, Johannes Kepler, a uh, famous astronomer from the Middle Ages, um, almost 500 years ago, to formulate the notion honeybees must have a sense of mathematics that they can make such uh, regular construction. And uh, now today we know due to modern technologies that allows us to investigate in great depth how honeybees uh, make these structures to know what's really going on. So honeybees uh, in first hand build the cells uh, as uh, cylinders. So their own body is the basis around which they build their own cylinders. Um, and uh, they pack these cylinders very densely together, and uh, then they creep inside these cylinders and they, they heat them up. So honeybees have the ability to create body temperatures up, up to 44 centigrades, which is really amazing. And at this uh, temperatures, the wax becomes soft and starts uh, kind of melting and flows uh, by itself into this regular structure so it is not that the bees uh, first hand create this hexagonal cells they start creating round uh, cells but by warming them up uh, the cells by themselves uh, in a way of uh, self-organizing uh, process the outcome is the standard crystal that we see
0: yes and you say that combs need to be not too hard and not too soft and the idea of temperature as you said is very important that bees can create and regulate the temperature inside a hive to make sure that the comb is of the right temperature. How do they do that and what is the right temperature for a comb to exist in?
2: Okay so the uh The region inside the honeybee colony, uh, which needs to be uh, regulated very, very precisely, is the brood nest. So honeybees, uh, during their life, uh, undergo a development, uh, we know, from butterflies. So we have a caterpillar, then we have a pupa, and finally we have a butterfly. And uh, in honeybees, very same route of development, we have larvae inside the bee nest, we have pupa inside the bee nest, and then finally uh, the adult honeybees are hatching. And uh, the pupa, the pupa stage lasts for uh, yeah around uh, 10 days, and this is a period in which the, the nervous system of the honeybee is developing. The brain uh, is developing, and it is interesting and I think fascinating that the honeybees' need for the For the brain development, almost the same temperature which is our human body temperature. So uh, we humans are running at around uh, 36 centigrade, not because our heart and lung and kidney... But because our head had had to be has to be uh, uh, warm as this, our brain has to be warm as this, and the brain development of bees needs the same temperature, and uh, the honeybees create this temperature, this heat, by the strongest machine each honeybee uh, possesses, which is uh, the wing muscle, muscle chair, so or the flight the flight shaft muscle the muscles. Which moves the wings uh, when honeybees are at, at uh, flying around, and uh, so what 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 the honeybees can do is what maybe some people uh, listening to your <laughs> to your broadcast have done a driver's license examination, which is um, they push full acceleration and do not uh, release the clutch, so bees can uh, in, in a kind of detach their wings not uh, really using their wings, but decoupling the wings uh, while they're running their flight muscles. And uh, so they do not uh, uh, fly away, but stand in position. But the flight muscles are heating up uh, uh, greatly. And uh, this temperature is then spread in the in the brood uh, nest to neighboring cells in which then pupa are resting and waiting for, for getting uh, warming up these can regulate this temperature uh, extremely precise in their antenna they have uh, sensory cells with which they can measure temperature to amazing uh, precision so they can detect temperature differences of 0.05 centigrade. And uh, if they note, uh, notice that it's too warm or too cold, then they compensate. So if it's too cold, I just explained they are heating it up. But if it's too hot, which uh, can happen easily, like in Australia, then they have trick uh, which we assume is also used for uh, room climatization, which is uh, are certain bees which uh, go out in the fields, uh, collect uh, water, bring the water inside the nest, and then uh, another bunch of bees acts as living uh, ventilators. They they stand still but they uh, vibrate their wings, create a uh, slight wind, and this wind, uh, together with the water, inside the nest uh, leads to evaporation and this evaporation leads to cooling just like our cooling systems of our rooms is working and the outcome is that this trooper are then kept at this temperature between uh, 34 and 36 uh, centigrade to an amazing precision.
0: that is really amazing i I can't even believe that they're so smart and highly sensitive to that temperature. And you talk about winter and the importance of their ability to regulate temperature in those very, very cold seasons, because their body temperature still needs to be in a a similar range. And um, how do they rotate their heating functions during winter? Because I believe they take turns in creating that warmth.
2: So winter is a very interesting topic. So honeybees have basically have have originated in tropical regions. And uh, the fact that as a colony, as a whole colony, they can survive winters, allows them to uh, spread themselves also in other continents, like here in in Europe, up to northern Europe, where they survive very well. If you cool down a single honeybee, uh, it uh, becomes stiff at about uh, plus 10 centigrade, and they are dead at about plus 4 centigrade, which is very, very sen- sensitive. So most insects can stand much, much lower temperatures. But if you take a whole colony and put them in, uh, in a cool room, you can lower the temperature to minus 40, four zero minus 40 centigrade, and the whole colony survives very well as long as they have uh, honey inside their guts, So the honey is used uh, as a fuel, it's uh, used as a fuel to run these wing muscles which produce the heat, and therefore bees need inside their nest a certain uh, stock of honey to survive the winter, but they make it very clever, so they do not run the nest at a very high temperature through the whole winter, which doesn't make any sense, but they Let the temperature inside the nest drop down to about 10 centigrade, which is, as I mentioned, the temperature from which on they get uh, stiff if it's uh, dropping deeper. And they have this 10 centigrade for about three, four days in a row. And then just for one day, just for one day, they heat up uh, to about 30 centigrade. The nest, in order to make the, the honey fluid enough that they can take it up, and then they let the temperature drop again to 10 centigrade so it's like an interval heating each two days warming up for one day to be able to eat honey and then cool down again so very very tricky, very very efficient
0: Very efficient and I was very interested to hear about the fact that winter bees live much longer lives than bees that were born for a different time
2: yeah, so that leads to a very interesting topic, what you just mentioned. So the worker honeybees can live for three weeks to four weeks uh, during the summer and uh, up to a half year uh, during the winter. And the interesting aspect is that the fact if it be, will be long-living or short-living is uh, determined by the temperature at which the pupae are developing, and the temperature is, uh, as explained already, uh, is set by the honeybees. So the honeybee colony in total determines the life length, the lifespan of the individuals. So if a bee pupa is raised at more like 36 centigrade, it will be a short-living honeybee during the summer. And if it is raised at uh, more like uh, 34 centigrades, at a bit uh, cooler uh, temperatures, it will be a long-living honeybee that survives the winter. So this is a wonderful and, yeah, it's a very subjective notion, but uh, uh, in my opinion, the most wonderful example of so-called epigenetics which is that environmental conditions determine the outcome of the genetic program. And in this fascinating case, the honeybees create their environmental conditions by themselves.
0: Yes, well, maybe we'll get to epigenetics in a minute because that's a very interesting topic as well. But I would like to know, while we're on the topic of creating different types of bees, how does a queen bee get created?
2: honeybee colony has just one female individual which is responsible for reproduction which which is a queen so a queen is not born as a queen so we have no princesses uh, so to speak but it's uh, created by the colony by the way it is fed so each young larva in the bee colony gets a food which is made by the bees themselves so inside their body they have uh, ants which make a uh, substance beekeeper called royal jelly and all larvae for the first three days gets uh, royal jelly as a food but only one larvae gets a uh, long life royal jelly exclusively and this one will become a queen.
0: And how do they access royal jelly? Where does that come from?
2: Yeah, royal jelly is created by worker bees, uh, by young worker bees, which have not started their uh, foraging activity outside the nest yet. They have to eat pollen. So, pollen is a very important basis for creating royal jellies uh, in glands uh, which are in the head of these worker bees. So, they have to eat pollen. And they digest the pollen and from the pollen components, then royal jelly is created and then they can regurgitate uh, this and uh, feed it away.
0: Mm. And the queen goes on a very important journey after she's become mature. She leaves the hive and is accompanied by a group of bees from the hive and um, you talk about that as being on a nuptial flight. What happens in that nuptial flight and why is that flight very important?
2: Honeybees are sexual... Animals like most animals, and they have to mate in order to produce uh, offspring. And uh, this nuptial flight is done by virgin queens out in the field, accompanied by uh, worker bees, which are experienced with uh, landscapes. They know where to go, and they go to so-called drone congregation areas, which are locations where virgin queens from different colonies and uh, drones from different co- colonies uh, gather together and the uh, virgin queens are then mating with uh, yeah, up to 10, 12, 15 drones and by that they get the reserve on, on sperm. They then are using uh, through their whole life to fertilize eggs. So they're only once in their life Go on such a mating flight, and following this uh, for up to five years, six years, they then can fertilize the eggs, which means uh, honeybees, long before us humans, have invented uh, tricks uh, how to keep uh, sperm fresh and lively.
0: Mm. And just how many eggs would a queen bee lay in her whole life?
2: So, one can calculate, so uh, during summer season, per day, each day, she gets about 2,000 children. So, per day, she lays about 2,000 eggs over a period of, let's say, uh, 30 weeks. And uh, she can do this up to five years. So, 2,000 times 5 times 30.
0: (laughs) 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 It's <laughs> definitely a big job, but you did, a lot. yeah. But you do say that that is really the the main role of the queen bee is to be the mother who is laying the eggs.
2: Yes, so this is the exclusive role of the honeybee queen. She has no different function, just egg laying, egg laying, egg laying, and once the sperm uh, reserved is uh, used. Up as soon as she has no sperm left, uh, she then is expelled from the colony or killed by the other bees because uh, yeah, she cannot then fulfil their major and uh, sole function.
0: Mm. And those bees in the hive, I believe they can tell whether a bee is a queen bee because of the smell or the odour that she gives off.
2: Yes, so this is very important for a colony to know that there is a a fertile and healthy queen bee present, and uh, she transmits this information just as you say by the smell of her body and by certain uh, scents uh, she can produce which are spreading throughout the colony so that everybody knows, even as a worker bee does not get direct contact to the Queen you can be far away at any corner in the colony but uh, through these uh, chemical signals each bee knows that everything is okay and uh, the bee is present and nothing has to be done to create a new bee
0: yes because is obviously very reassuring to know that the queen is there, because if the queen isn't there, I believe they have to spring into action and create a new queen, because no colony can be queenless.
2: Absolutely true what you say. So usually it's not a problem if a bee colony loses a queen, because... At least during the summer season there are enough uh, larvae inside the nest available and one of those is then picked to become the new queen by the process we just were talking about. But it is really a disaster for a colony if they are losing a queen at a period where there are no larvae available in uh, a colony and no new queen can be uh, raised and this is the end of the colony
3: then.
0: Yes, and there are some circumstances where you say that bees or a group of bees can swarm out of the hive to go off and find a new place to live and create a new hive. And that also presumably can take away a queen from a colony of bees.
2: Yeah, so uh, in fact we were just talking about mating behavior in honeybees. It is very uh, strange that mating in bees is not linked to uh, reproduction. So mating uh, has a, in bees the function to uh, create a mixture of genetic bases. The reproduction of a honeybee colony is division. So each year, one times or several times, a honeybee colony divides into two equal-sized colonies. A new queen stays in the old nest with half of the colony, and uh, she gets a perfect donation, so half the colony and all the combs filled with honey, filled with pollen, and brood, and so on and so on. And the old queen, uh, she has to leave the nest with uh, the other half of the colony. And the living bees, the swarming bees, they in fact uh, have the need to find a new nesting site uh, fairly quickly, to find shelter and to start building new combs and uh, starting a new colony.
0: And scout bees are very important in that process in terms of finding a new place to live, aren't they?
2: Yes. <clears throat> so uh, the process goes like this. So once half of the colony with the old, old queen have left uh, the nest, they rest at a beehive. It can be a branch of a tree, it can be a window in a in a building, anywhere. So there are then about in number about uh, 20,000 bees, very densely together, and from this uh, comparably small number of scout bees then is. Is uh, searching the vicinity up to a few kilometers distance for appropriate uh, new nesting sites like hollow tree or crack in in rocks or in any building. So what they think would be good for the new uh, home.
3: Mm.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the male bees because they aren't really the main feature of a hive. They um, have a very limited purpose and it's really interesting to think that really the majority of the worker bees and all the other bees that are in the colony are female and and work collaboratively together to um, survive and create honey. But you write in the book that drones, male bees, represent the insect version of the, quote, typical male. And I thought it was very interesting the types of characteristics and behaviours that drones, uh, the male bees, exhibited compared with the females. Could you talk a little bit about some of the interesting characteristics that the drones have? when they are born
2: yes so back to the beginning of this question how you formulated it so indeed honeybee colony most of the year is a purely uh, female institution so humans uh, feminists are very happy about to see that societies can function perfectly well if they are run and ruled exclusively by females <laughs> um <laughs> But occasionally, once a year, a small number of drones uh, is created because they are needed for mating. And the drones originate from eggs <coughs> which are not fertilized. So the queen can, by laying the eggs, determine if the bee that will come out from this is uh, female or male. So if, if the egg is fertilized, so if a sperm is added to it, and uh, you should imagine the micro-mechanics inside the bee queen, yeah, that mm.
1: allows
2: either a sperm to get access to the egg or not. And if a sperm gets access to an egg, then a female uh, will result, and if it does not get access to an egg, then a male will result, which means that old queens, which have no sperm reserve, uh, start producing exclusively drones, and they are useless for the colony, and therefore the old queens are killed then. And the drones have only function is, yeah, to mate with the the queens uh, during this neutral flight and otherwise they are useless uh, consumers inside the colony they are fed they are allowed to eat honey as long as they are needed but after a few weeks uh, in summer once these uh, nuptial flights have been taken place then these bees these drones uh, are expelled from the hive they do not get any more to eat and uh, those which do not leave voluntarily they are even uh, stung to death so they are treated then not very kind by the bees uh, once they have fulfilled their function
0: Yes and it's really interesting that you say that the drones are quite slow and lazy in their evolution of their behavior because they don't when they become bees immediately get to work and start cleaning the area where they were born like the female bees do they actually kind of sit around for a while as you said and wait and let other bees clean the area
2: yes absolutely true so so drones are totally lazy so they don't participate in the important needs and functions that run such such colonies. They they just don't do anything but they are accepted as long as they are needed as a sperm deliverers. and as soon as this is done they are kicked out of the colony.
0: And you highlight the fact that a drone can carry about 10 million sperm cells in seminal glands in their large abdomen so that's a a very large number when they do fulfill their function do they end up transferring that number of sperm cells across
2: so this is a very interesting aspect that you just mentioned so basically a single drone would have enough sperm to complete what the queen is needed through their whole life. But the queen is mating with quite high number of drones, not because a single drone has not enough sperm, but in order to get a good mixture of sperm from different fathers. So inside inside the bee colony, all bees have the same mother, which is the queen, but they have different fathers. And the fact that they have different trousers makes very interesting and stable mixture of properties. So they are different. These are different inside the colony. So some can do this function better than other functions. And this differentiated mixture makes the colony very stable. It's uh, maybe interesting to mention that drones which are mating are... We yeah, are not very happy uh, about this because they, they die during the mating process. So the mating takes up during flight and the drone injects uh, the sperm inside the queen while exploding. So you, you even if you are close to such a behavior, you even can hear a slight blop uh, sound of the exploding drone. So it's, uh, yeah, the life of a drone is ending in its uh, most beautiful moment.
0: Mm. Yes, you say that they fall to the ground and leave their ripped-out genitalia anchored into the queen, which is a fertilization mark.
2: Yes, so this fertilization mark uh, helps other drones to find the queen during the uh, mating flight because this mark reflects UV light, which is a light wavelength we humans cannot see, but points out to other drones where the fast flying around queen is just at the moment, and they can find it easily. So it's again a case of very close uh, cooperation between bees, even between bees of different colonies.
0: And talking about cooperation and collaboration, you talk about the fact that, quote, a community of individuals dependent upon one another whose achievements cannot be attained by single individuals, but instead are based on communication and cooperation is, from a biological perspective, a super organism. And so what you're suggesting there is that um, a bee colony is a superorganism. organism. What makes a bee colony become such a, a special type of organism?
2: Insects are non-social, so we have about uh, 20 million insect species uh, known to us, and only 2% of them invented the life of sociality, like ants, termites, wasps, and this uh, social beast. So non-social insects do not communicate about other things, like uh, mating, so they just mate, and then they have no business to do together anymore. It's totally different with social insects. So social insects can, as a colony, as a superorganism, can perform each important duty simultaneously. So a colony can simultaneously build new combs, defend against enemies, collect food, create a good uh, climate inside the nest, and so on, and so on, and so on, because there are experts which are doing this. And the big advantage of such a cooperation is that they are very flexible, they can react very quickly to needs from the environment, to, uh, to good or bad weather conditions, and so on, and so on. uh, solitary living animals cannot do. So, like, uh, a locust has no chance whatsoever to have an influence on their living conditions. But uh, social insects create their own living conditions and such have reached a summit in evolution uh, like we humans.
0: And so, If we talk a little bit about how they communicate, which you were just saying is part of their their way of being social, you do talk about the fact that they can't hear, but that they can feel vibrations. How is it that they sense those vibrations and do their waggle dance, which is one of the ways that they can communicate different types of information?
2: So the vibrations are very important ways of signaling inside the nest uh, across the combs. So the combs are like a telephone net for the honeybees, and they sense the vibrations through their feet. So in their feet and in their legs, they have very tiny sensory cells, which react to tiniest uh, amplitudes of movement of the walls of the comb and uh, these movements are created by sender bees which uh, produce signals like in the context of the waggle dance uh, you you mentioned and they are picked up in the darkness of the nest uh, by other bees through their legs which are interested in learning what the sender bees have to, to tell them
0: Yes, and I was really fascinated with the way you talked about and wrote about the fact that, you know, we often would think about bees as kind of waking up in the morning, heading outside to go, you know, fly around and see if there are any beautiful flowers that they can get the nectar from but they don't necessarily have such an aimless type of approach when it comes to seeking out nectar and uh, pollen and doing their jobs do they they actually have a set group of bees that go out and do that and then come back and communicate where the rest of the bees need to direct their attention
2: yes The internal organization of such uh, superorganism is extremely efficient. So they don't do more than they have to do, and they do not less than they have to do. And the question is how this outcome is created, and the communication is one very important link. So bees, for example, if they realize that the honey reserve uh, inside the colony needs to get then there is a certain group of bees, uh, scout bees, which go around in the landscape and look for blooming trees and flowers and, and so on and so on. And once they found them, they go back to the nest and uh, through the uh, famous waggle dance, indicate to other bees some messages. First, they tell them that they have found a new uh, and interesting food source And second, they give a rough hint where about out in the landscape, out in the field, this new uh, preserve is located. And then they continue going back and forth between the new food source and the hive. And this way, in combination of the rough information through the record dance and the precise information in the field so bees continue to be social also out in the field they also communicate out in the field very difficult to study we know very little about this but that finally then leads new recruits exactly to the spot where the dancing bees coming from
0: And I remember that you also mentioned that odour was a very important way to also communicate a certain direction
2: yes so let's uh, look at the situation we have experienced bees which know where a new food source is located and we have non-experienced bees which do not know this yet and so there is a continuous exchange of information between these two groups which finally then leads uh, also the new uh, recruits to the spot and the beginning of this chain of information exchange is a dance inside the dark nest and it continues out in the field because the experienced bees release a pheromone which is a scent uh, they produce inside their body which then uh, the non-experienced bees follow and they get pinpointed exactly to a spot which can be kilometers away from the hive.
0: Mm. It is fascinating the way that they use their senses and one of the other senses that is also very different from humans and which you describe in the book is how they see and that they have two different visual fields, one for the right eye and one for the left, and that there is a broad area of blindness in between. And what I was really interested in was that the way they receive signals or visual cues is that they are very pixelated and that each eye is made up of 6,000 small single eyes how on earth does nature create such a complex being, but also then what can bees see that humans can't and, and what makes their visual perception so special?
2: Vision in honeybees is very very interesting because you should imagine that uh, the way how plants attract bees, the way we also find uh, flowers attractive is made for the sensory world of the honeybees. So when we donate flowers to people we like, we are parasites on the sensory world of the honeybees. Flowers are by nature created such that uh, they fit perfectly to the visual world of the bees. And um, just as you say, so one property of the visual sense of bees is that they do not see pictures like we do, but very roughly pixeled. Just imagine that one, one single eye of bee has about 6,000 pixels, and a camera in a smartphone has uh, millions of pixels. Yeah, So it's a very, very rough picture they create, but this is compensated by quite a number of other p- properties uh, we do not have. So one, one property is that bees can see wavelengths from the sunlight we do not see. It is uh, UV light. UV light is a very short wavelength, following uh, blue light that we see. And the next wavelength is an UV we do not see. Bees can see this. And not only UV light, but they can uh, identify polarized light. Polarized light is a light which on the sky creates a pattern we do not see. If you look up in the sky in Melbourne during a sunny day you see a blue sky and nothing else. If honeybees look up they see a pattern of lighter and darker regions which helps them navigating and orientating because they have to find their way home from kilometers distance from a food source they have been. And one further Property which helps bees despite their uh, gross uh, optical resolution uh, to see very well is that they have an excellent uh, temporal resolution, which means the uh, fast movements they see perfectly well, so if a honeybee finds their way into a cinema. In the cinema, they do not see a movie, but they see the single frames which we humans do see as a movement, but bees have such an excellent temporal resolution that they see frame by frame, and all these things uh, taken together helps them finding flowers, helps them navigating, helps them seeing each other out in the field, and uh, just to make their living.
0: Mm. And that's why you say it's important that humans don't move quickly and jump back or um, have sudden movements around bees if they are worried about being stung.
2: Yes, (laughs) that is true for bees and and for wasps as well. Fast movements, they see excellent. So if a honeybee is flying around your head, And you shift it away with slow hand movements. The the bee has no aid to find your head precisely. But if you perform fast hand movements to push away the bee, the bee says, thank you, now I know where to go.
0: (laughs) It's very funny. And one of the other really surprising things that you highlight in this book is the fact that bees can detect odors spatially so that there is a 3D, three-dimensional perception of odor. How does that actually work?
2: So we have no idea or we have no chance to put ourselves into the position of a bee and try to imagine how a bee would uh, would experience a world of smells in 3D. So we know that bees can do this from behavioral experiments when we study bees in experiments where they have to solve tasks in which 3D smell plays an important role. And we know it from the study of the brain of the bee inside uh, their heads. They have uh, special regions in their brain which are uh, specialized for uh, detecting smell. And so from studying such neuronal bases of smell, we also can make these statements. But as I said, it's impossible for us to imagine how a world would be in which you could even smell spatially.
0: It's really hard to imagine that and have a a big enough imagination to even conceive of what that would be like. And you talk about another great feature of bees that have really been discovered in the laboratory or scientifically, as you've been referring to, and that a lot of scientists have found out that honeybees can learn certain things and have longer term memories.
2: Yeah, so the intelligence of honeybees is really amazing. So they learn very, very quickly, like for example, a young honeybee, which is out on their first flight, has no experience before for the first time in her life lands at uh, let's say at an apple tree and instantly learns how the flower on an apple tree the bloom on an apple tree is looking like and how the smell of apple tree is and this one contact, uh, first contact with an apple tree she never will forget in her whole life so very very quickly they only need uh, one training session and then they never forget it And so the fast learning is one very exciting ability of uh, honeybee intelligence, but there is much, much more. So, for example, honeybees uh, have even abstract concepts. So they can, you you can, and this is an experiment which is done by a group of uh, scientists led by a young Australian woman. Um, You can train honeybees. Uh, to distinguish between the style and artwork of, let's say, uh, Picasso and uh, Monet, and uh, once bee learned the specific features of a Picasso painting, she is able to detect this, even among pictures she never has seen uh, before. So this yeah, true case of uh, bee intelligence.
0: It is fascinating and amazing, really. And that biologist you're mentioning is Judith Reinhardt from Australia. And one of the things that is particularly interesting to me is you've talked about the fact that bees have this great internal biology and that they can produce a range of things like wax, but their biology um, is very important in creating other products or at least in processing other products in able to create new things such as propolis
2: Yes, Propolis is a substance which is created by vegetation so the parts of trees, for example, in spring, they are covered with propolis, and trees and bushes create this as a defense against bacteria and fungi and the bees collect this material and use it inside the nest for the same purpose that is used by the trees and bushes. So they cover the cells in which young bees or larvae are raised with wallpaper, so to speak, of propolis, which then prevents infections, bacterial and fungal infections.
0: And it's a very strong adhesive because you talk about the fact that beekeepers require very strong tools in order to get past the propolis that's a very strong adhesive in the hive.
2: Yes, absolutely true what you say. And this uh, leads to still not solved mysterium how bees can handle this. So if you, if you touch propolis with your hands first propolis it's uh, stuck at your fingers like a glue, and uh, then you watch bees manipulating it with their mouth and with their legs and their feet and they do not get stuck to it so it's really it, it, it shall be a very interesting question for people who try to learn from biology maybe invent a new kind of glue.
0: And because you talked there about the fact that it's very important in killing off bacteria and fungi as well as um, viruses, what are some of the threats that bees face nowadays in terms of their survival? Um, Obviously not just humans taking their honey or interfering with their combs, but are there other things that are really affecting the way that bees survive and operate during the year?
2: So there's a of uh, threats and dangers and risks for bee colonies is very important because we need honeybees as pollinators for fruit and vegetable. And so there is a bunch of problems which bees uh, face nowadays in addition to what bees know since uh, millions of years. So since millions of years, they have their diseases like viruses and bacteria and so on and so on and they learned how to come along with with this during evolution. But nowadays, there are new problems for the bees which they have not been faced before with, like mite called varroa. It's a small animal related to spiders, about one to two millimeters in size, which lives in good harmony with Asian honeybee species. And from there, it was transferred onto honeybee species we and you in Australia are working with, which have not been known before, and this is a big, big problem for the honeybees and for the beekeepers. Other problems for honeybees are modern agriculture, which has, for example, big monocultures here in Europe, and these big monocultures don't offer The honeybee is a big variety of foods they need for staying healthy and the use of Agrochemicals uh, which are made to kill insects and as uh, honeybees are also insects, they are also hit by those. So it's a bunch of problems which all together yeah, are not too fortunate and makes it necessary to think about what can be done about it and what solutions can be put up to reduce all these problems uh, for honeybees.
0: And... You do talk about the fact that there are even a range of chemicals that um, don't immediately kill or harm bees, but over time can become lethal and build up.
2: Yes. So chemicals and honeybees is a very complex topic. As I mentioned, uh, no one should be surprised that honeybees are killed by chemicals which are used by farmers to kill insects, yeah to kill those insects which uh, destroy our food, mm. and as as soon as bees get in contact with these poisons, uh, they also get in trouble and but it need not to kill the bees instantly, but they carry these chemicals back into the hive, it is collected uh, it 's going into the wax and from the wax, maybe into the honey which is then also a problem for us as honey consumers, and it can kill the larvae inside the colony, it can reduce the immune system of the bees, which makes them more sensible against uh, bacteria and viruses. So it's a very, very complicated matter, for which uh, not a really um, perfect for can be seen. So there the needs uh, to be more studies, and there needs to be more concerns mm. and there need to be more discussion uh, also between people who are uh, the one or the other way involved in this complex so farmers and the uh, developers of agrochemicals and beekeepers and natural conservationists they all have their perspectives and uh, finally there, there is a big need solution which fulfills most of the needs specifically by the bees.
0: Yes, and if we talk a little bit about the wild bees you say that there are about 560 different species of wild bees just in Germany and that they also have a very special Function and that um, they have a highly specialised need and they really look at very specific plants and pollinate those plants. So presumably, you know, we need to also think um, beyond honeybees and look at the solitary or single bees that you also describe.
2: Yes, it's absolutely correct what you say and uh, one can even put the scope uh, a bit wider. It also affects um uh, most other insects uh, and bird species and reptilian species and so on and so on and so on. So basically our nature, our biosphere, which is our home, the home of of us uh, humans, it is not uh, safe any longer. And we have to do a lot about to prevent really disasters and catastrophes. And the honeybee in my perspective is a perfect how shall I say instrument to uh, make people aware of all these problems and when we find uh, people like this highly motivated and uh, very impressively working beekeepers uh, which take care for their bees then automatically you take care for all other uh, living individuals around so whatever you do for the Good of honeybees automatically is good uh, for solitary bees, and automatically is good for birds and reptiles, and so on and so on and so on.
0: That's a really great point and you do raise a bit of a moral or ethical dilemma when it comes to humans and our interaction with honeybees and provide some of the most, I guess, extreme examples of where humans are manipulating honeybees for their own commercial gains, which is, um, as an example, in America you describe um, how bee colonies are put into trucks and driven around the whole of America. They can sometimes travel up to twelve thousand kilometers every year and they're put into these different locations as you say to pollinate different food types that are growing in America. Do you think this is a very a wider problem in other countries and that there needs to be more regulation around how we utilize honeybees?
2: To my knowledge, is only such extreme in that case you just uh, described. So here from my uh, uh, group of co-workers, we are very well linked uh, globally to a lot of uh, institutions, uh, nature conservation uh, institutions and beekeepers and so on and so on and so on. And I am not worried about that most of them treat bees in a very respectful manner and are motivated very much not to gain as much profit as possible from the bees, but really to respect them as a very important link in a complicated natural network, and also to to accept uh, how we depend on the bees. And uh, it's not only our dependence on the activity of bees for our food production, but it's also the fact that bees are very uh, good indicators of the condition of uh, the world in which we are living and our children will be living and um, when organisms like honeybees give us signs uh, that they come in trouble, we really should think about uh, what we are doing to ourselves.
0: Mm. And you raise there a great point that there are many, many passionate beekeepers, who uh, have a very strong emotional connection or bond with the bees that they um, work with and look after, and um, that that is something of a a strong passion or hobby for many people around the world.
2: Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't know the number for Australia, but in, in Germany we have about uh, 100,000 passionate beekeepers uh, globally. I think it should be about 30 million, but I'm not really sure about this number. And they are now so important, their uh, activity is so important, because the world in which uh, the honeybees are living is not the same like uh, 30 million years ago. But we humans shaped it such uh, that bees now need our support to make their living. We don't find enough hollow trees. We don't find enough diversified food for them and so on and so on. So uh, honeybees in modern societies, human societies, depend on humans as much as humans depend on the bees.
0: That's a really lovely way of putting that. Thank you, Jürgen. And before I let you go, um, there is something that's been very, very important in Australia. I'm not sure whether you've seen the news from here that there have been many cases where the honey that we're collecting from honeybees has been combined with other types of syrups in order to boost the number of honey that we're essentially selling to consumers and um, that German labs such as uh, one over there called QSI have been playing an important role in testing the honey that uh, Australia is producing to see whether any of the honey products that are being sold in supermarkets for example are 100% honey or whether they have other undisclosed products in them.
3: Yeah.
2: So unfortunately, uh, it is the case what you say that uh, the fact that we increasingly, increasingly find yeah very strange to phrase it carefully, very strange behaviors of food producers. So they also do not stop at honey. Yeah. So mm. it, you see this with, with meat and with vegetables and with fruit and so on and so on. Always uh, to be led back yeah to uh, maximization of profit yeah and it's it's horrible it's it's very bad because honey is is one of the oldest perfect uh, perfect food for humans yeah even before humans uh, invented the fire and stuff i mean honey e- e- existed uh, since uh, the beginning of mankind, and I'm sure that our uh, ancestors uh, millions of years ago they thought they are in paradise when they when they hit a nest of bees with uh honey compared to the, the other uh, foods that they had by this uh times mm. uh, honey is honey is healthy and honey is also for our senses there's the smell and the scent and so on it's, it's just wonderful and i find it horrible that people uh, who are ruthless enough to trick and uh, to be uh, to be not uh, honest uh, even do not stop uh, at honey.
0: Yes, exactly. I know that you are studying bees still and uh, have created a great program that is an international program that will be launched uh, officially in 2019. Could you share with us some of the things that that group will be studying and how you will be engaging with the, the broader public in finding out more about honeybees?
2: Yeah, thank you for giving me the chance uh, to talk about this project. Uh, we call it v for b and uh, the idea is to have a standard beehive equipped with uh, Technology, like we measure the temperature and humidity and uh, weight development and so on and so on, from inside the colony, and we measure environmental factors, um, which are also uh, affecting us ourselves. And these standardized hives, uh, which uh, are put up such that even non-experienced uh, beekeepers can uh, work with it, are distributed now globally uh, to schools and to universities and uh, to museums and so on and so on. And all this data uh, are running then uh, here into our Würzburg University to the uh, IT department, and the IT department processes it, uh, that each uh, participant can have a look at his own data and compare the data with others, and finally, finally, with uh, modern IT tools like uh, deep learning and big data analysis, we hope that we learn uh, a bit more about the needs of this highly complex uh, superorganism bee colony embedded in different uh, environments and this project can from the beginning on be used uh, in schools for teaching and it's uh, i I think it's very exciting and uh, on the long run the data we get should also serve as a basis uh, for uh, beekeepers and finally also uh, support the bees uh, because if we support the bees uh, we support ourselves
0: Jürgen, you have made me very passionate and excited about bees, and I definitely won't be looking at another bee the same way again. And um, (laughs) I'm, I've already started taking photos of bees um, getting the nectar from flowers because I'm thinking how fascinating it is and what they must be experiencing. So I really appreciate just how much your science and your your book um, with Deidrech has opened my eyes, and I hope it opens a lot more uh, other people's eyes to just how fascinating and also how important honeybees are for humans and how special they are in and of themselves and that um and even if we didn't get honey from them that they are very very important and special in their own way um so thank you for your passion and your expertise on this
2: thank you much amy it was really a pleasure talking to you and uh yeah. While, while we were talking, um, I I even could sense uh, through the telephone across uh, twenty thousand kilometers uh, that uh, maybe you are now really also honeybee infected.
0: <laughs> you you sense correctly. Thank you. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much for for chatting with me today.
2: My pleasure, Amy.
3: Three triple R.
0: And that track there was by Ivy Soul and it is Dream Girl, which is um, a really nice, relaxing track. Uh, I've got with me on the phone now. I'm really excited to have her back on the show. I spoke with her last year about honest history when we were talking uh, about World War One, and Gallipoli and the Anzac legend uh, and conscription, many, many topics. Um, I'm really pleased to have with me on the phone Professor Joy Demusi, and Joy uh, has many roles and titles and they are all very much relevant to the discussion we're about to have. She's the President of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. She's the president of the Australian Historical Association. She is an ARC Kathleen Fitzpatrick Laureate Fellow and Professor of History at the University of Melbourne and uh, she's obviously very very qualified to do many things and I'm really pleased to have Joy with me now. Hi there.
3: Hi, Amy. It's an absolute pleasure to be back on your show.
0: I just love chatting with you. Um, I'm sad that this is the the circumstance that I have to talk to you, though, um, because I would have loved to talk about um, a a more positive development in the humanities. But as I was saying before the break, um, the former minister federal minister for education Simon Birmingham has vetoed 11 uh, grant research grant applications that had been approved and had gone through a very rigorous uh, approval process by the ARC um, the Australian Research Council and it really is usually just a ministerial tick of approval it's kind of a a formality really um, because of the process that has has been going through but the really galling part of it is that we only found out about it through Senate estimates because Labor Senator Kim Carr asked the question. If he hadn't have asked the question we wouldn't have found out. I mean what was the um, response first of all in terms of the reaction from um, scholars particularly in the humanities? <laughs>
3: That's right. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, so the response to um, Senator Birmingham's intervention and veto of research uh, grants was real outrage and it continues as I speak. I mean, professional associations, uh, scholars and researchers from right across the research community in Australia have expressed absolute outrage and anger at uh, what is what amounts to um, a violation of academic freedom. Uh, so, as you say, an intervention by a minister is, is, is usually... Uh, ..is very unusual, but it's also typically a, a formality to approve grants going forward and being funded because, as you say, Australia has one of the most rigorous and Robust peer review assessment processes in the world, and this one act has created such damage to Australia to that, but also to Australia's international and national reputation. So, there's been, um, as I say, outrage from across the sector, from researchers, from vice chancellors, because of course universities uh, are affected as well as, of course, the uh, researchers themselves. So it's right across the board, and it's it's really disturbing if this becomes a um of behaviour.
0: It's yeah very disturbing and I mean if we look at past precedent uh, it has rarely happened once it did happen that we know of in 2004-2005 by Education Minister Brendan Nelson Um, but even then the fact that um, we only just heard about this now makes you wonder has this been happening and no one asked the question?
3: Well, that's true, Amy. I mean, one can never know. I believe Kim Carr, though, did ask at Senate Estimates whether there had been any intervention in the last five years... Before this, and apparently not, so we we have that on the record. But as you say, uh it's not the first time. Brendan Nelson took it upon himself to veto a number of applications in 2004 and five. Our understanding um, of that situation was that there are only a handful. Eleven grants, four million dollars is a substantial number of grants and a substantial uh, amount of money. So this is not insignificant. I mean, it would have been obviously important if. It one or two, but we are talking on a scale that's really quite significant in terms of intervention and vetoing of of research in this country
0: mm. Well I mean let's talk a little bit about the significance of some of the categories of research I know that the, the category that it, all these researchers are applying under is humanities and the creative arts but then there are different types of um, awards and fellowships that you can apply for one of which um, is the future fellowship and that is a, a really massive career milestone for any academic to receive a future fellowship and um, And it really sets them up, doesn't it, for Mm. their career?
3: Absolutely, Amy. So I I think um, we have to remind ourselves uh, just how extraordinarily uh, competitive this process is, how... the the highest and the top quality applicants uh, only receive this funding Um, and you know it's a career as you say milestone to to get one of these grants Uh, there are different layers levels of them as you say Uh, early career uh, is the DECRA what we call the DECRA a mid-career if you like is a future fellow and then you've got what we call the discovery project. So there are different tiers of um, schemes that the ARC offer for researchers, uh, particularly for early-career, mid-career academics, this can be their lifeblood it can be their life support it can be their uh you know a real stepping stone to actually building an academic career so we can't ever underestimate just how important these these schemes are and these fellowships are for um, budding academics for the more established scholars it's the discovery and they're no less significant um they are really important if you want to continue conduct research in this country, you need funding and the Australian Research Council is the the way you do it and applying to them is the way you do it. So they're competitive, they're incredibly prestigious and for 11 of these to be uh, knocked back by the Minister has damaged and will continue to damage people's prospects in the future. So those affected are really um, suffering enormously from this Act. Um, We can't underestimate that at all. Uh, So I think that needs to be kept in perspective as well. This is a really serious um, action by a Minister uh, on a range of levels, uh, not least of which uh, affects scholars directly
0: trying to build their careers Mm, it's really an excellent point and um one of those early career researchers mark stephen has now moved overseas and is teaching at the university of exeter in devon in the uk because he did not receive um that grant for which he had been approved by the arc and Mm. it was really um even more galling i think and humiliating um that uh a lot of these researchers thought they weren't good enough and had been told that they were not in the top 10% um, and... Uh, that Sorry, that they were in the top 10% of unsuccessful proposals. And La Trobe Vice-Chancellor John Dewar has said that, quote, the feedback stated that the application was not highly ranked. This was untrue and profoundly misled the university and researcher involved. And that also, I guess, highlights the fact that if you apply for these grants and you're rejected, you're thinking you're not good enough and your university may think you're not good enough and that your research isn't highly rated by your peers and that may have flow-on effects.
3: That's right, Amy. So um, this is kind of an issue that's now being raised around the the feedback given to applicants Um, and I think this does undermine everything that the ARC stands for in terms of defending a robust system, defending a transparent system, defending a system that is, um, you know, as I said earlier, world-renowned. Now that we've got these mixed messages, now that this has come to light, it's really uh, damaging in terms of challenging challenging that robust peer-assessed process that we... And the ARC rightly prides itself on because it is a, you know, stellar um, peer review process. So I think um, this is now starting to uh, raise a whole range of issues, and as. Um, as Vice-Chancellor Dewar has indicated in his public statement, universities are, you know, increasingly becoming very angry about this this information that was misinformation, apparent misinformation to the candidates or applicants. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is becoming really uh, a serious issue. Um, So, you know, I think Birmingham's action has raised uh, a crisis in confidence in, um, you know, what a minister... Can potentially do to undermine a system that um, has been working very well and has has all the hallmarks of an outstanding research funding body. So his actions, I think, uh, are undermining that, and I think that's that's a very serious act for a, a, a minister to 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 do um, with with that damage in, in creating that damage in his wake. Uh, so you know, it's it, you can talk about the ins and outs of the application. The problem is, however. This action is a bigger issue. It addresses a range of other issues academic freedom included, I'd say.
0: Yes, well, it really does amount um, to a a form of censorship because, um, and and it seems like it's intentional because Simon Birmingham tweeted on the 26th of -hmm. October, so that's last Mm -hmm. week, he said, quote, I'm pretty sure most Australian taxpayers preferred their funding to be used for research other than spending $223,000 on projects like post-Orientalist arts of the Strait of Gibraltar. Brolter. Do you disagree Mm -hmm. Senator Kim Carr? Would Labor simply say yes to anything? I mean this Mm -hmm. implies a very strong form of personal judgment and preference for research and topics and really does suggest there is a strong political or ideological element.
3: I think that's, that's that's right amy i mean one of the um requests i think uh, the the sector if i can say is is asking is what were the reasons you know what were the reasons and this was this was this action was taken on what basis has the minister disqualified 11 Applications that met all the criteria of the highest standard of research excellence. What are his reasons? To date, we have no reason. And without that, it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that these were politically motivated, that they're somehow um, reflecting um, Birmingham's personal personal preferences. Now, you can't conduct high-quality international research on the basis of a minister's personal preference. Um, this is why you have an independent body like the ARC who conducts peer review. Um, this is why topics that are often controversial might be at the cutting edge of research and, 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 and you know, really opening the way of new ways of thinking. But a politician might think, well, you know, they might disagree with that. Politicians come and go, governments come and go. The best research will set agendas for the future and you have to back that research. You can't do that on the judgment or whim of political um, opinion or even just personal polit- opinion of the minister. So, so in short, without a reason, given um, academic good, robust reasons... We've only got, um, you know, Simon Birmingham's own personal view. And as I say, you cannot run a research, um, you know, enterprise uh, on that basis. That is uh, just unacceptable.
0: Yes, it is completely unacceptable. And the fact that um, the humanities are targeted really does speak to some of those stereotypes and um, really poorly understood contributions of the humanities because... um, you know, in, in medical research, one can point to a clear outcome such as you know we discover that this is the case with this disease or it isn't and here are potential future options for further research and treatment and it has a real-world um, applicability. But a lot of people don't understand just how much the humanities do contribute to the real world and do have a very practical and even sometimes when they're not practical, they still have a very important role to play in society I mean, can you talk to um, the types of contributions that hu- the humanities do make and and why someone could be, I guess, misguided about its contribution?
3: Sure, Amy. And look, your point is absolutely spot on. So we must remind ourselves that these um, applications, all 11 of them were from the humanities. Um, I should say here that our colleagues in science, in engineering, engineering in medicine right across the research community have been incredibly supportive and 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 you know made very strong statements about the unacceptability of what's happened so what, what I think is important to keep in mind is, while this is today happening to the humanities, there is nothing stopping any minister now or in the future doing this for any research project. Um, and so I think we need to keep that in mind, that, you know, uh, we don't want to run a system with uh, a minister um, making decisions at whim. Um, on the, on the um, issue of the humanities and the contribution, well... I mean, I think without, <laughs> without the humanities and, and areas in the humanities um, that, are, that, are, that are being researched, I mean, you would not have any understanding of, of our lives at all. I mean, in all aspects of culture, of politics, of society, of the past, of the present, as we go future with um, artificial intelligence, philosophy, history, politics, sociology, um, literature, art. I mean, they all inform where we've been, who we are, where we're going. Now, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI and technology without ethicists, without critical thinking, without humanity scholars, that whole world that we're about to experience in the, you know, as it comes to us. Um, we need humanity scholars more and more to interpret what's happening, to look at the consequences of, of what's happening, to look at the short and long-term implications. I mean, you know, this is what makes... Us human, it, make, it it allows us to, you know, interrogate our identity, to to look forward and to be critical. And I think, um, I mean, they're very broad statements, but I think without humanities, um, we wouldn't know um, who or what we are or where we're going. Um, and I think, in terms of the, 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 if I can say, the process of. Selection of Birmingham's choices, if I can put it that way, uh, they seem ad hoc, they seem scattergun. Uh, I should add that these applications are anywhere in the order of 60 to 100 to 120 pages. I mean, these are very, very substantially argued applications and cases put to the, the panel making the decision. They are very measured. Um, it sounds to me like um, Birmingham has looked at the title and not understood it or not taking his fancy um, should, you know, if he had perhaps read the applications and given a considered response, his his reaction might have been different. So I, I think um, it, it does smack of a, a very um, ad hoc and uh, let me say, you know, rather dismissive view of the contribution of the humanities more broadly. Mm,
0: yeah, and and the group of eight CEO Vicky Thompson said, quote, this is clearly base politics. So, you know, there's some very strong words being used and rightly so by a whole range of uh, leaders in the tertiary education sector. Um, and one of the things that... Uh, is also really important to note is that so many humanities scholars don't just write journal articles, they write books, they give lectures, they teach, um, they make films. There are so many different ways that they engage the public to disseminate their ideas and research that, um, that it's also really hard to measure just how much of that um, public engagement is... Uh, Is creating a wealth of knowledge and a more sophisticated society that hopefully does think critically about, for example, politics.
3: Well, indeed, that's right. Uh, So, as you say, you know, in the 21st century, the dissemination of research and uh, research outcomes uh, are finding uh, forums in in, in so many different contexts that weren't available even five years ago, you know, social media and so on. Um, So, you know, humanities scholars are very engaged in that space, very engaged in uh, uh, totally connecting with you know public discussion public discourse public events um, m- various media outlets and so on and so forth I mean you know I think uh, any, if you sat down and looked at it in any given week you could see um, where humanities academics were engaging were commentating were were part of the public debate about all sorts of issues so you know I think um, there is a real uh, uh, disengagement I think with that issue just a real even dare I say ignorance about how central humanities research and scholarship is to any society
0: Mm. and do you think there is any chance of recourse because i mean it's really the fact is he's not approved 4.2 million dollars worth of research that hasn't gone elsewhere i believe is there any way to rectify the situation
3: well, um, that's a very good question, Amy. I think um, various commentators have asked and you know requested that the funding be reinstated. Now, that is a matter obviously for the government, for the ARC, and for other bodies to to discuss. Um, I think um, the researchers obviously would like that, and, and certainly those of us um, in the in the humanities research community would would want that and we do want that how realistic that is or whether that will happen time will tell but there have been many calls for that to happen uh it's a substantial amount of money particularly in the humanities area and uh i think um that that's it's it's important that question be asked and i think important that that issue be pushed further
0: Mm. and joy i know that you're going to be chairing a discussion later this afternoon um for the 30th year anniversary symposium of the Melbourne Feminist History Group and uh, I just wondered if you had um, I guess any insight or background into how that particular group has played a role um, in society and particularly around Melbourne
3: Thanks for that, Amy. I can put a plug to that. So yes. that's on this afternoon from two o'clock, um up here at the University of Melbourne, uh in Arts West, um, in the north wing, room five five three. Um and this is a uh a wonderful milestone that I think um, we've reached, the Feminist History Group. Uh, how has that group and, and those over the years who participated in it affected um, our world? Uh, I think the scholarship that's come out of over those three decades has been. Transformative, not only for the history profession, but also in understanding such a central role women, women and gender have played in you know uh, understanding society, understanding who we are, and uh, you know looking at these issues. Um, analytically there are issues that are still with us today in a more contemporary fashion um but looking at the past and looking at the present and the future and seeing how issues of you know as i say gender and also women's role have been vital to that that might today 2018 sound a little familiar but uh it's taken 30 years really to build that scholarship and turn society into that direction of thinking and the importance of that sort of scholarship as we move forward
0: Yes, it's certainly become, you know, part of the main mainstream in terms of scholarship, at least more mainstream than it was at the beginning.
3: Indeed, absolutely, and I think it comes back to this question we are discussing about about the humanities, scholar, um, you know, importance of it. Um, there are many uh, debates in the in the workforce and, and society in general um, today around women's role and women's place and women's. Um, you know in politics there are very few of them Uh, we might ask why and and their treatment of women and the treatment of women in politics hasn't been exactly what you might call stellar so you know all sorts of issues like that are still with us and that's come about the question being raised and the debates that are had come about through these sorts of forums you know forming and scholars publishing and researching in these areas.
0: Exactly. Joy, it's been really wonderful to speak with you and thank you for bringing that group to our attention and I hope people can head on down to Arts West, which is the new home for the arts. Um, it's next to the Bailey Library and uh, it, it goes until 6pm. So from 2 till 6, um, you can head on down and take part and listen to the fascinating discussions and celebrate uh, feminist history.
3: Thanks, Amy, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to you today. Uh, It's been a great pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Joy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.